continue in our series of messages from the Old Testament book of Judges. One of the things we saw last week, just to kind of lead us into where we want to go this week, is that in the Bible, in both the Old and the New Testament, there is a repeated pattern of events that demonstrate to us how God relates to people he's covenanted with, to people he's in relationship with. We saw that as we went through the scriptures, God always initiates any of his covenant relationships. He's always the one who starts, not us, and he always does it the same way with some kind of act of grace. Okay? Specifically, he reveals himself his, to his people in some way by performing some act of deliverance often, like the exodus from Egypt. That gracious work of his serves as a basis for the covenant relationship that he formally and legally established at Sinai. In the New Testament, he performs the ultimate act of deliverance for his people by giving his only son at Calvary to deliver them from the sins. It's that saving act that serves as the basis for the new covenant relationship that he has with those who are trusting in Christ. After God acts in grace toward the covenant partner, whether it's a person like Abraham or a covenant nation, Israel, then he waits for their response. If the response is appropriate, like praise and worship and sacrifice and obedience, then he takes his covenant people and he blesses them. And the blessings include things like fertility and plenty to eat and safety over your enemies. But if the response is inappropriate, like his people rebelling against him by turning to idols, which is what Joe just read about, then he brings discipline on his people. And that would be the curses of the covenant. That would be things like being exiled from the land and not having enough to eat and famine and plague and pestilence and all of those things. And those specific terms of the old covenant in terms of the covenant blessings and the covenant curses are in Deuteronomy 28. You can read for that. The blessings for obedience, fertility, military, conquest of the enemies, abundant harvests were not known by and large by the Israelites during the period of the judges. And the reason is because they were under the curses of the covenant for their repeated disobedience. They were repeatedly, as you go through judges, repeatedly turning away from God. That's why God inflicts discipline on his people by allowing these pagan Canaanites to mercilessly oppress them. So as we come to chapter 3 in Judges, we see another glorious truth about God. And remember, whenever we read the Bible, We're not looking fundamentally for moral lessons. We're looking to know more about God, to know about his ways, to know about his thoughts, to know his character. And as we look at his glory, we're conformed to it. We are transformed to be more and more like him. So God is the hero of every story in the Bible. That needs to be what we're looking for. If you remember from last week, the author gives a broad survey of the flow of events that run through the book of Judges in chapter 2, verses 6 to 23. Well, as we move to chapter 3 now, it's important that we understand that the author, after giving that summary in chapter 2, he takes us now back to real time. The real time of the events he's telling, and he picks up where he left off in the section before this, where God sends his angel to the Jews at Bochum in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. There he tells the Jews that he will not remove the Canaanites from among their midst because they had been unwilling to destroy them. Now we want to pause for a minute before we get into today's text, because that point right there 
is also very important. And it's very practical, intensely practical truth, and it has to do with the way that God deals with his people, Old Testament, New Testament, yesterday and today. And that is, God will not do for his people what we are unwilling to do for ourselves. God will not do for his people what we're unwilling to do for ourselves. Now, because that's very important, we need to be very careful how we understand it. I did not say God helps those who help themselves. That is not the same thing at all. That is an abomination because it completely cancels out grace. That would mean that God is looking down from heaven and deciding who to help uh, those people who are already doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so, oh, they're doing what, so I'll help them. Okay, the problem with it is the main message of the Bible about humanity is we are utterly incapable of helping ourselves. Okay, that's why we need a Savior. In truth, God helps those who know that they are in no way able to help themselves. That's what it means by being poor in spirit. God helps those who help themselves is never found in the Bible. It's antithetical to the message of the Scriptures. And that's not at all the same thing as saying God will not do for us what we are unwilling to do for ourselves. And that's what we see here in Judges. Okay? God is not in the business of raising lazy, spoiled children. God says, move in and take them out, and I will fight with you. And they said, oh, we really don't want to. God did not say, well, then, okay, I'll take care of it. No, he said, then you're going to live among them. I'm not going to do for you what you're unwilling to do for yourselves. It's clear that driving out the Canaanites from the land was to be the cooperative effort between the Jews and God. And this is a wonderful study. When God tells the Jews to come into the promised land, how does God work? What's the cooperation between God and his people? This is a wonderful example of it. Basically, God had promised to drive out the pagans, but there was a Jewish part to this. The Jews had their part in their relationship with God, and that was to obey him by trusting in his overwhelming power, which he'd already demonstrated, and going out in faith to engaging God's enemies in his strength. That was their part. The Canaanite nations were seven lar nations larger and stronger than Israel. According to Deuteronomy chapter 7, there was no way the Jews could have beat these people on their own. So God assures them, I will fight for you as you fight against these pagans. You just look to me in faith to give you the victory. That cooperative arrangement that we see right here in the, the taking of the promised land between God and his covenant people, it's the same today with his new covenant people. God works in and through us as, in grateful obedience, we, by his grace, step out in faith for him. If we refuse his grace, if we refuse to step out in faith, he will not do for us what we are unwilling to do for ourselves. We see the same arrangement as Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That text has always bothered certain people because it makes it sound like you're working to be saved. That's not what it's saying. We don't work to be saved. Salvation is a free gift of God. But we are to work out this process of salvation that started in our conversion, is continuing every day as we're sanctified, and will be completed when we're glorified in heaven. We're to be working that out, what God began in, us, in our conversion, and we work that out by learning to trust in him by increasingly stepping out in obedience. Okay? 
The reason we can, in faith, work out this process of salvation in saving us is because it is God, it says in verse 13, who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, here the cooperative effort, same as what we saw in Joshua. We can work because God is at work in us. That's what he's saying. This fight of faith for faithful believers that we engage in every day is possible because God in his grace energizes our will to fight the fight and because he actually enables us through his power to accomplish what he's given us a willingness to do. That's the Christian life in terms of the way it's lived out. God provides the power. We need to work out our salvation. Our job is to trust in Christ and by faith entering into the fight for spiritual maturity in the strength that he provides. That's the balance. In faith working out our salvation and God working in and through us. The point is we dare not be spiritually passive expecting God to do what we're unwilling to do. It's very important today within Western Christianity where being a Christian in the West is sometimes equated with praying a prayer, going to church, passively trusting in God, whatever that means, waiting around for heaven without ever really breaking a sweat. There's this idea of, well, because the Christian life is to be a life of rest, there's no fight, there's no struggle, there's no sweat. Okay? That's a passive understanding of Christianity. Just trust and God does the rest. Let go and let God. Not biblical at all. Okay? It's a mistake to confuse trusting in God's control with spiritual passivity or laziness. This warped, unbiblical thinking is often expressed by sentiments like, and you could put it a thousand different ways, but one way to put it is, well, since I know that God wants this particular thing done or this particular ministry accomplished, and because he's sovereign, I really don't need to sweat it all that much. I don't really need to to labor hard at this. I'll just trust him to do it somehow. Okay, that's laziness. Okay? That would be like the Jews saying to Moses, Moses comes up and says, I'm, I'm telling you, God has promised you the promised land for your inheritance, and he's going to fight for you to take the promised land. That would be like the Jews saying, well, great, let us know when he's finished killing off those nasty pagans, and then we can move our stuff in. Okay? The call to Israel was to fight, and as they fought in faith, looking to him, God would win the victory through them. God will do the same for us, but he will not do for us what we're unwilling to do for ourselves. Okay, now let's get into the text. The context of Judges chapter 3 we saw last week, and that is that the Jews didn't pass on the truth about God or his works, parting of the Red Sea, parting of the Jordan River, to the generation after Joshua. So they didn't know God. They didn't know all the things that he'd done on their behalf. And God knew that that lack of knowledge, that ignorance of him and his works on behalf of his covenant people destroyed Israel's chances of driving out the Canaanites. Because the only way that tiny little Israel would drive out these larger, stronger Canaanites is by faith in his power. A faith that we saw is established in a knowledge of God and his past works, which they didn't have. Okay? So they were in trouble. As we've seen in chapter 2, what little fighting they did do as a tribe was in their own strength, on their own resources, and it didn't work out very well. So let's read, once again, very quickly, the first six verses. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That's an important phrase. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. 
These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon and from Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Okay. As we'll see through these opening verses, God tests Israel because he wants them to see how little devotion they really had for him. Okay? God never tempts his children. James tells us that, but he does test them through various trials. James 1, 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God tests our faith through trials. God uses trials to test our faith, and in healthy believers, believers that are excited and growing in the Lord, that testing strengthens their faith. It makes them more durable, more steadfast in their faith. But when an unhealthy or immature or backslidden believer is tested by God through a trial of some sort, it reveals something very different about that kind of person. There are redemptive purposes behind these tests for Israel and for us as well. In this text, I want us to take a look at two redemptive purposes God has for Israel and for us through the trials by which he tests our faith. Now, to be clear, the trials that Israel is experiencing are totally self-inflicted. Okay? These trials are all their own fault. Okay? But whether it's all your own fault, which we, I think we can all relate to, or whether it's something that just happens to us, we had nothing to do with it, God uses both trials in the same way to try to perfect us to make us more like Jesus. They failed to pass on the truth to the next generation, the knowledge of God through their parents and their religious leaders. That meant they had no good reason to believe God could defeat these stronger Canaanites. And so when fighting, they did engage in was a dismal failure, okay? And the pagans remained among them. That, having to live among pagans who worshiped very differently, who served different gods, who were not devoted to Yahweh, who didn't know him, who didn't know his works, that's the test. To reveal to them how unfaithful they were to God who had done so much for them. So the first redemptive purpose we see in this test is in the hardships experienced under trials, we can learn where we really are with God. We can learn where we really are with God. We all have an idea about where we think we are. Sometimes it's accurate, sometimes not so. Sometimes it's not just a matter of I'm not as good as I think I am. Sometimes, by God's grace, I'm further ahead than I think I am. Okay? One and two again. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. Let's unpack verses 2 and 4, where the author explains why God had left these nations in the promised land to test Israel. In order for us to understand the nature of the text, we need to know the context here. God had called these people to himself, and he'd entered into a covenant relationship with them, okay? Now, that relationship had privileges and it had responsibilities. The privileges were God's protection and his provision, his presence with them, his love, his grace, his promises, all of that. One of the responsibilities of the Jews was, under his leadership, to act as his agent of war against these Canaanites were dwelling in the promised land. It wasn't their war. It was his war. They were fighting his holy war. That's the idea. 
Though God had given his people, the Jews, this land, another purpose of this war against the Canaanites was for God to work his judgment on these evil nations who had for centuries been doing all sorts of wicked, evil things like sacrificing their children in the fire. He had repeatedly communicated. They had refused to repent. So God declares a holy war of judgment on them and is using his people to wage it and destroy his enemies. That's part of their covenant responsibility, to be a divinely empowered agent of war against seven nations larger and stronger than themselves. So when verse 2 says that the reason God left the nations in Canaan was so the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before, we need to understand that within a larger context. As we'll see in a little bit, it was true that God wanted to teach his people how to fight. It says that. But God's primary purpose in allowing Israel to know war and to teach them war was not primarily a matter of putting them through a boot camp experience to teach them how to be good soldiers. Okay? According to verse 4, the main test is placing before the Jews is, in addition to having them there among the pagans, the main test is, will you assume your covenant responsibilities and drive out these nations, showing yourself to be my faithful covenant people? Will you do that? Daniel Block, who's written an excellent commentary on Judges, says it this way, This generation needs to learn that they have been called to a holy war, that Yahweh is the commander-in-chief, and that the enemy is to be totally exterminated. That was another part of the test. Okay? The generation before them under Joshua had passed that test. They trusted in God and in his power destroyed these wicked pagan nations east of the Jordan. They'd been faithful to their covenant relationship with Yahweh. Now God is testing this next generation to reveal if they would be faithful to his covenant relationship with them. It's obvious that this test wasn't so that God would know. <laughs> God knows everything. He's omniscient. It was so that he might reveal to his people that they might know through this text whether they were truly faithful to Yahweh and the covenant that he'd given to them. And as we read in the rest of the chapter, of course, they fail dismally, as is the case almost every time in this book. The sad truth in verse 6, the author says, And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. The Jews compromised here in the deepest way possible. They were powerfully seduced by the Canaanite gods. Not only did they not destroy these nations, they practiced their sexually immoral occult religion, and they intermarried with them. That is very significant. Because their intermarrying with these Canaanites could have eventually blurred the genetic distinction between God's people, the sons of Abraham, and the foreign Canaanites. Okay? That's really important. Because their intermarriage with the pagans threatened to destroy the Hebrew race as a distinct group of people. That would have been disastrous. Because God had promised that his deliverer, his Messiah, would come through the children of Abraham. Okay? If the line of Abraham would have been thoroughly enveloped by these pagan nations, there would be no Messiah coming through the Jews as promised because there would be no Jewish people. Okay? Part of the underlying plot that runs from Genesis 3 all through the Old Testament is Satan's persistent attempt to destroy the Jewish race through genetic impurity, because that would render God's promise of the Messiah that was a Jew null and void. 
So they're constantly, he's constantly tempting them through the Canaanites to intermarry, to lose that genetic distinctiveness. The history of the Old Testament is a testimony of God's sovereign grace in miraculously preserving the line of Abraham and the line of Judah through which Christ came. The Jews, when confronted with the hardship of this trial, revealed that their hearts were full of idolatry. Okay? When, when we're in times of trial, our hearts are tested and revealed too, aren't they? We're like sponges. I don't mean like the kind of sponge you see in the plastic. I mean big natural sponges, those brown natural sponges you see sometimes. You don't see them much around anymore. But if you were to take one of those natural sponges and you were to put it in a, a bowl of colored water and you put it in there, squished it in, you left the color, and then you put it on the counter, you wouldn't have any idea what kind of water was in there if you hadn't seen the bowl because it all goes inside. It's only when you exert pressure on the sponge that you see what's inside. That's the way we are. You want to find out what's inside a person, whether their faith is sincere or not, watch them in pressure. I mean, anybody can be happy when things are going great, right? It takes a believer who's trusting in Christ when things are going really bad to instead of whine and complain, increasingly learn to accept God's will and look more intently to him, okay? Then our faith is strengthened. But if when the trial comes we have a spiritual meltdown, then that shows that our faith is weak and fair weather and it doesn't come from God. And so we need to see this dynamic as a really great act of grace because God uses the hardships of life to work out his redemptive process by showing us the condition of our hearts and it is incredibly important for us to know the condition of our hearts because we don't want to be those people who come to Jesus spouting our spiritual resume saying all the things were done and have him say you're totally deceived I don't know you it's really important that we know where we are with God and so this is an act of grace a second redemptive purpose uh, in the hardships of God's trials that test our faith is we learn the spiritual militancy required to follow God. We learn the spiritual militancy required to follow God. God tests the Jews, verse 2, in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. There were other purposes, obviously. One of them was teach war. Okay? It's clear that God wants his people to be fighters, warriors. God's people are frequently in the Bible, Old and New Testament, spoken of in militant terms, the army of God. So whether we live like it or not, Christians are a spiritually militant people. Theologians call the church today the church militant. At the end of the time, it'll be the church triumphant, the church militant. We live in enemy territory. That's the way it was with the Jews, and that's the way it is with us. God's people who live in this fallen world are in for a fight because the spiritual forces temporarily in charge here and their prince, Satan, are in opposition, deadly, serious opposition to God and his people. In Scripture, God reveals himself as a warrior, that's part of his divine character. It's part of who he is. In Exodus 15.3, in the Song of Moses, we read, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. There's a militancy about God. In Revelation 19, at the end of the world, when Jesus comes back, he reveals himself as a victorious conqueror, bursting out of heaven, riding on a white horse, 
Okay, he's leading the armies of God as the warrior king. So God is the great warrior king, calls us as his people who are called to reflect his character to be warriors as well. And we need to know that during times of trial, we feel even more intensely than normal the hot breath of our enemy on our necks. Okay? That provides us with a way to learn how to fight. It's when we're enduring hardship that we sense the opposition most strongly because part of any trial, part of any difficulty we face in, is not just in our circumstances. The circumstances can be very bad in and of themselves. But a bigger part of the trial often is how the enemy attacks us in the midst of the trial. Discouragement, a sense of hopelessness, condemnation, severe doubt. That's what Satan provides in the midst of the trial. Sometimes they're worse than the trial. Satan doesn't fight fair. He doesn't know anything at the Marquis of Queensberry rules of engagement. He kicks us when we're down. And sometimes he waits until we're down to kick us. Okay? He takes the wounds that we encounter through trials and he throws salt in them. That's the way he works. He's intensely cruel. And he loves to beat up God's people when they're down, when they're under trial and having a hard time. And God allows him to do that because he uses the intensity of Satan's attack to cause us to call out to him. See, you might say, well, wouldn't the trial be enough? <laughs> Just the hard part? I think this is a testimony to our own sense of self-sufficiency because often the trial isn't enough, okay? We are constantly telling God in the midst of trials, in our own way, I got this, God. Our impulse to do that is very strong. It runs very deep. So much so that we need to be under a whole lot of pressure and heat before we really, truly throw ourselves in complete dependence upon God, okay? Frequently, it's not the trial itself that causes us to look to God in faith. It's those extras that Satan throws in that make it especially biting. It's the paralyzing fear and anxiety, the sense of hopelessness, the great discouragement, the self-hatred, the nagging doubt that Satan's lies bring into our lives. It's the cranky or unreasonable or legalistic or impatient or cruel people that he often sends into our lives when we need them the least. Okay? Those are wonderful gifts of his. Frequently, it's those satanic attacks that drive us to abandon all about ourselves. And that means that it's in times of trial, when we're under severe attack, that we can learn to fight the fight of faith and engage in spiritual warfare. We learn to place our trust in God's promises, even when they feel foreign to us. It means praying earnestly. It means humbling ourselves and getting other people to pray for ourselves. It means going to his word for hope and getting ammunition of truth to fend off the lies of the evil one. That's the kind of stuff we do in spiritual warfare when we're acting as the church militant and we learn it best in times of testing because that's when the battle is pitched the highest. It's when we're under attack in the midst of the trials that we really begin to truly understand what it means to live in a world run by a devil. It's when we learn to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's 1 Peter 5, 8. That's crucial for us to grow in grace. It's as we learn to fight against our spiritual opposition that we learn to walk in victory with God as his overcoming army. And God uses times of trials to teach us the reality of and how to engage in spiritual warfare. Those seasons in our lives can be excruciatingly difficult. 
But during those times, we need to always remember that the trials through which God tests our faith are always intended by Him to train us. Or the word that the New Testament uses is, which means the same thing, to discipline us, which means to train us. And the Bible teaches that God's training or discipline is not to punish us. It's really a vehicle through which He displays His love for us. In Hebrews 12, the Lord disciplines the one He loves and He chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If we are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all the discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Okay? This is the New Testament version of what we've just been talking about. God uses trials and the satanic attacks that accompany them to train us. That's part of his discipline, so that we can abandon trust in ourselves and instead learn to trust in God. It is painful. The text says that. But it's there so that those who have been trained by it can yield a, a harvest of righteousness, a peaceful harvest of righteousness. In the case of the Jews, they weren't trained by their trial at all. They failed the test. The Canaanites' trial caused them to bolt from God who had rescued them and run into the arms of the pagan gods. They failed. If you've been a believer for any length of time, You've seen people who were believers or who claimed to be believers and went through a serious trial or maybe not such a serious trial and instead of them making it through, they walked away too. They walked away into the arms of some other God because instead of learning to trust God and finding strength in the body and the word, they, they get angry with God. Why on earth did he let this happen? I'm leaving. Okay, we've all seen that. That's what the Jews did. God reassures us in Hebrews 12 that his discipline through trials in hardship is proof of his love for us and that we're his children, his sons. So whining and complaining, eh, that doesn't go. Learn what God is teaching us. Rejoice that in the midst of the discipline, God is accomplishing his redemptive purpose in us. He's fitting us for heaven. And that's our highest goal, right? Be like Jesus. In light of all of this, where are we this morning? Maybe you're in the midst of a trial right now. Maybe the heat is turned way up. Maybe the enemy is all over you. James' command is, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Certainly, when you're in the midst of a trial, it sure doesn't feel like it sometimes. It feels like anything but that is happening. And so we have to trust. That's a faith issue, isn't it? God, if you're in a trial right now, remember, God wants to use it to strengthen your faith, and you can count it all joy when you understand that. If you're discovering through it that your faith is shallow, don't wallow in self-pity, okay? Come to God. Thank Him that He loves you enough to show you where you are. That's grace. And thank Him that He's done all the work necessary in Jesus to bring you where you want to be, where you need to be. Remember from Hebrews 12 that the tests we experience are vehicles of God's discipline or training and they're proof he loves us as a perfect father. God give us the grace to trust and exult in the love of God even when it comes as he tests our faith in trials and spiritual attacks.
for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, life is difficult. And some people in this room, unbeknownst to maybe anybody but themselves, are in this moment walking through fire. And God, I pray for them. I pray you'd help them. I pray that you would strengthen them. I pray that you would cause them to take comfort from the truths in Judges chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 12. God, we've all been there, and if we're not there now, we're going to be there at some point, probably sooner than we'd like. And so, God, I pray that you'd give us your perspective. I pray, God, that you would, first of all, give us a hunger to be more mature, to have stronger faith, so that when the trial does come, we can say, well, this is a good thing because I've been praying for this. And Father, I just pray that you would enable us, God, to be militant as believers. Father, not in, a, not in a strange kind of way that sees a demon behind every bush, but just knowing that we're in a fight. And it's going to be a fight until the day we die. And we can either fight well, according to Scripture, or we can be on our back most of the time. God, help us to see ourselves as militant people who fight with a very different set of weapons than the weapons of this world. The weapons in our warfare are mighty for the pulling down of strongholds. They include things like prayer and fasting, getting into the Word, trusting in You, being strengthened by fellowship. Father, help us to sharpen those weapons. Help us to be people who are militant for You because the light has triumphed over the darkness and You want to manifest that in our lives too. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.